you're listening to How to Stan. For more information about the show, as well as my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, and how you can support both of them, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how hyphen to hyphen stan dot html. Enjoy the show! Just a heads up. This episode will cover some awful crimes, murder, sexual crimes, so please, please, please be aware of that and proceed with listening with caution, discretion advised. I'll try to keep those details to a minimum, but I did want to give you a heads up. In 1850, an explosive celebrity divorce trial started between the actor Edwin Forrest and his wife Catherine Sinclair. Edwin Forrest was a favorite of working-class men and often, even after marrying Catherine, affiliated in working-class social circles, despite them living among the upper class, who Catherine hung out with. So she was basically cozy with elites, I guess you could say, but he was a favorite of the opposite. This led to intense support for one over the other that also translated into disgust with the other, hatred for the other. So not just support for one of them, but angry feelings toward the other person. People also were jumping to the defense of Edwin Forrest, especially after getting into feuds with the actor William McCready. William Charles McCready was set to perform in this theater in 1840, and Edwin Forrest fans chanted things outside the theater the night of the show. This escalated quickly, state militia was called in, and 20 people died in what is now known as the Astor Place Riot. Edwin toured a lot, he was a traveling performer, and he became suspicious that his wife was cheating on him, which became grounds for their divorce. He found a letter from a different male actor, William Jameson. They both seemed to want a very quick, quiet divorce in 1849, but it was anything but. Because by 1850, over 250 daily newspapers were running across the U.S. Newspaper supply, news supply, speedy news coverage, tons of mini news updates instead of just saving stories for lawn reads. That became the trend around this time. So this divorce between celebrities was at the same time of the rise of the need for quick, constant news coverage. So celebrity fodder was, in a way, the precedent was being set for it back in 1850. This was also when celebrities found it useful to start using the newspaper as a way to shape public opinion. There was actually a writer, Nathaniel Parker Willis, who published a statement in the New York Herald, basically accusing Edwin of misbehavior and saying that he was spewing baseless rumors and would therefore leave no woman in town unscathed from, and quote, safe from destruction by the easy conspiracy of vile men, unquote. Unclear who leaked it, but we can probably safely assume Edwin leaked it. That letter that made him think his wife was in an affair got leaked to that paper. So now the same paper was also doing counter-programming in his defense, saying, quote, We pity Mr. Forrest. They have both been made dupes of. These new doctrines in philosophy, manners, morals, unquote. This paper also became essentially a meme template before memes were really a thing, including some images of the scene when, literally, in Washington Square Park, Nathaniel Willis was whipped by Edwin. It really came to physical blows that intense. This was a very personal, personally taken war of words and more. This will sound oddly familiar. There was a six-week trial. This was in New York, December 1850. 
the jury deliberated for just three hours before ruling in Catherine's favor, earning her $3,000 in annual alimony. In the aftermath, Catherine struggled still financially. She couldn't hold a job. People didn't want to hire her. And for the rest of her life, despite the jury ruling in her favor, she was shamed. Rumors were spread about her. And she also just rubbed people the wrong way because of her independent, progressive view of womanhood and who a woman should be in that time. Edwin's career, though, also nosedived. There was a lack of interest in him post-trial. The ultimate mirror to celebrity trials today, to me, is the abrupt lack of interest in the aftermath of what happens and how no one seems to win, except the media, really, who got the content they wanted and moved on. More on that later, but let's talk about some other, much more recent examples of famous faces who went to court and their response to their presence there, the superfans who showed up in person or galvanized online for them, and then dive into the reasons, psychologically, socially, etc., of why they did that. And we'll get into the grifts and stuff. There's a lot to discuss. Let's start without the gruesome side of this. Lori Loughlin, best known as Aunt Becky from Full House, full disclosure, a favorite show of mine ever, so this story really did upset me for personal reasons as well as moral ones. She was one of the famous stars wrapped up in what was dubbed the Varsity Blue Scandal where these famous entertainers with a lot of money participated in a scheme to bribe their way into getting their kids accepted into colleges. In her specific case, her and her husband were accused of trying to bribe their two daughters' way into the University of Southern California with a half a million dollar bribe and with faking the rowing status, literally photoshopped pictures of them as rowing recruits, basically. She was officially charged with mail fraud and conspiracy to commit mail fraud, and she did spend a bit of time in prison, but the max would have been 20 years. She got less than six months. There was a lot of outrage over the way this group of powerful people misused the system and took spots in institutions away from people who truly, genuinely earned those spots. This system and what the cases said big picture about academia, who gets ahead, and how, that was really a deep issue worth reflecting on. And that remorse and introspection did not seem apparent with everybody. Some people did. Felicity Hoffman seemed genuinely to reflect, but I think Lori was one of those who did not, but that's just my take. Some people who didn't even care if she reflected on the deep implications of what she'd done or not were the two super Aunt Becky Steens who grew up watching Full House and love her to this day who showed up to cheer her on outside of the courthouse in custom Aunt Becky masks. They chanted, Free Aunt Becky! And, although Lori was just seen waving and mouthing thank you to them, at other times she did approach fans waiting outside the courthouse, and she would sign pictures, take autographs, act like it was a red carpet event. One of the stands who showed up said, quote, As children, we were both huge fans of Aunt Becky. She was kind of like our childhood mom. I'm not saying what she did wasn't wrong. It was. I got rejected from so many schools, and what they did really wasn't fair. But everyone's acting so surprised. I don't know why. I mean, rich people do corrupt things, unquote. The superfan who showed up with her said, quote, I remember staying up really late studying for my SATs, SATs that I took myself. It doesn't mean that I'm not a fan, though, unquote. 
basically saying, I get the frustration. I'm frustrated too. I worked really hard on my SATs to genuinely earn my place in a college, and she took that away from someone, but I'm not going to hold it against her. There was a similar not-gonna-hold-it-against-her mentality when it comes to Elizabeth Holmes. Long story short, she was on trial for potentially defrauding people because she claimed her blood testing technology with her company Theranos could do all sorts of tests that it wasn't really doing. It turns out behind the scenes, very faulty discoveries were made. The actual blood tests were either inaccurate or secretly not even being done on Theranos machines as they said it was. People who potentially got misled about diagnoses were really put in harm's way. The jury actually ended up deciding that she was guilty of defrauding investors, but not defrauding clients, defrauding patients. Some people did show up in person, clamoring for spots, there were only 80 open a day for the public, so they would get up super early. There were even some rumors, although I couldn't find any confirmation, that some people were paid line holders to get there early for people, using apps that are just for paying people to do tasks for you. And some people said, stand in line for me, save my place. Some people there sold merch, others just cosplayed as her, with her signature look, the bun, the black turtleneck. And a lot of people cosplayed her for social media. TikToks with her name were viewed over 13 million times. Some Facebook pages even were overjoyed reacting so excitedly to a fake news story put out that she was acquitted of everything. There's also a TikTok creator with over 10,000 followers who turned her popular social media posts about this case into money and started selling shirts on Etsy for $22.25 that said Elizabeth Holmes is my hashtag girl boss. Some of this, it's important to note, seems very satirical, meant to be ironic, especially in this era of budding feminists, young generations of feminists, very tired of the girl boss aesthetic. The girl boss term has become kind of toxic, not the kind of feminism this new wave appreciates. The latest generation of feminists I see is much more focused on uplifting all kinds of women, not just ones that can succeed in specific corporate hierarchy-related ways, in certain STEM-related fields, things like that. Not just the people with business acumen finally smashing glass ceilings. So with the Gen Z-focused TikTok content, I think it is reasonable to assume that some of the extreme embrace of her girl boss image is being used as a parody especially because TikTok and just social media content from Gen Z period, full, full, full of irony. It's hard to know when people are just being upfront these days with their posting. Some account owners have actually gone on the record overtly saying, yeah, this started as a joke, but I realized I could make money off of it or just expand my social media presence, etc. So I leaned into it. That TikToker with the Etsy sales of Elizabeth is My Girl Boss shirts told LA Magazine, quote, having a fraudulent healthcare company with an awful culture and simultaneously being named Glamour's Woman of the Year is deeply funny, unquote. There's this parody account at Elizabeth Holmes Updates with an Instagram bio reading, Are You on the Right Side of Her Story? The account did post a picture of the cosplaying homies, as they called themselves, in their black turtlenecks, with the caption, quote, United we slay, divided we fall, unquote. Switching gears for the next trial story that got people really fired up, O.J. Simpson. The TLDR 
He married Nicole Brown in 1985. They had two kids together. On New Year's Day of 1989, he pled no contest to a domestic violence incident where Brown had been beaten so bad she was hospitalized for it. He was sentenced to 120 hours of community service and two years of probation. They divorced in 92, and in the summer of 94, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, who was at just the wrong place at the worst time, trying to return some glasses that had been left at a restaurant, were stabbed to death outside of Nicole's condo. OJ, at first, was the ultimate person of interest and agreed to turn himself in. But then he vanished, which led to the super-famous, super-slow, drawn-out car chase. This situation has a bit of the same feeling of the 1850s divorce trial I brought up at the beginning of the episode, in how it came about at a time primed for success media coverage-wise. Because this time, instead of being during the heyday of newspapers, this was the heyday, the rise of cable TV 24-7. So these networks had 24 hours now to fill, and it was easy to find a way to do that with this weird car chase that was actually so closely watched, so popular and fascinating, that NBC moved Game 5 of the NBA Finals into a little corner of the screen. So the big screen during a Finals game was reserved for this chase. The celebrity spectacle of it all was also because prior to the trial, he had been really becoming more noticeable. He was a Monday Night Football commentator, then switched to NBC. He cameoed in Naked Gun. He really took over the celebrity and sports tabloid worlds that perfectly merged to get everyone interested in this story. Then there was the famous lawyer, Rob Kardashian, who read aloud on TV, probably the first ever time a reading like this had been on TV, of the contents of a suicide note. This case also had buzzwords before buzzwords were really a thing. The if it doesn't fit, you must acquit comment about the gloves from the crime scene. It also fascinated the audience because it was an unprecedented use of DNA evidence. So lots and lots of reasons for the appeal. No court term pun intended. The jury reached a verdict in October of 95 and shocked the world by acquitting him. Victims' families did later sue him and win in civil court. They sued for wrongful death and earned $33.5 million in damages that were never fully paid back. Long story short, O.J. became a broke man, committed armed robbery as a result, and got arrested during it. But he was fully freed from parole February 2022. and is now on social media trying to stay relevant. Another case that captivated the nation... Michael Jackson, well actually his doctor, Conrad Murray, who had been alleged to have basically caused his death with the medicine he administered. He was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, and hundreds of fans were outside the courtroom chanting justice and crying tears of joy. One fan actually broke into a performance of I Want You Back that got people cheering, but the crowd was almost too hyped up. One woman was so excited she fainted and left in an ambulance. There was also a tepid presence of counter-protesters that were Conrad Murray stands, I guess. One supporter, who thinks Murray was framed, said, quote, I'm upset. I'm almost wetting my pants, unquote. Even those accused of the most heinous of heinous crimes, like R. Kelly, have their superfans, granted mainly just two of them, who were dedicated enough to, during one of his trials, show up every single day. 
They would even spend lunch breaks at the nearby park, really excited to just catch a glimpse of him going to his tour bus for those breaks. One of the two traveled 40 miles by train and bus to get there every day. And the other one skipped school, including the first few days of class, where she studied criminal justice, saying that this trial in person actually was way more educational than whatever she was learning in the first few days of class anyway. This one also left a two-year-old son, Robert, with his grandma while she went to this trial. She also plans to name her future kids after him, Sylvester and Kelly. In this specific case, he was found not guilty, and the 18 and 23-year-old were overjoyed, tears welling in their eyes over it and saying they knew it all along. Speaking of young fans, let's talk now about Pharma Bro, Martin Shkreli. Pharma Bro, as he's called, quick refresher, he raised the price of a medicine by 5,000% back in 2015. He hiked up the price of a drug that's used for treating both cancer and HIV. He price gouged people proudly. He even at one point offered a lock of Hillary Clinton's hair for 5K on Facebook, which prompted the U.S. District Judge from New York to order him to be put in jail, considered kind of a risk threatening people publicly. He was officially accused of defrauding investors. He was convicted but then freed on $5 million bail. He has used the social media era as leverage to really change public images of him to make him seem like just another social media influencer. He live streams all the time with his investing advice and sometimes criminal activity. Sometimes he's borderline doxing as well. One day after posting bail, one day, literally after posting bail, he live streamed for hours, scrolling through OkCupid, showing off users' information. He did another super long live stream right after his conviction. In one live stream, he basically tried to have a gotcha moment with a journalist, and the feed was just full of viewers commenting really awful stuff at the journalist, really degrading comments. When he doesn't like news coverage of him, he'll buy a journalist's web domain so he can post negative stuff about them, and then he'll offer to sell you the domain back for an exorbitant price. Yeah, price gouging after being convicted of price gouging. He also has this personality that seems so brash that it makes sense why in the internet era he has this following who love this stuff. He told Bloomberg, quote, I would love to talk to Congress. I would berate them. I would insult them, unquote. Others who seem to really enjoy their infamy, Anna Delvey. Probably heard of her by now, especially with that Netflix show Inventing Anna based on this situation. Her name is actually Anna Sorokin, but she went by Anna Delvey, and I can't help but think Aaron Sorkin every time I read Anna Sorokin. It's confusing. Anyway, she was arrested back in 2017 and later convicted of stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Technically, she was convicted on charges of grand larceny and theft of services. Basically, she scammed her way into the elite art world. She left prison early on good behavior, but then, because of overstaying her visa, went into ICE detention, where, as of recording time, she still awaits deportation to Germany. But in the meantime, she is entertaining over 1 million Instagram followers and selling her artwork. So she basically faked it until she made it, for real. She recently held an art show in New York, May 2022, allegedly. That's literally the name of the art show, allegedly. The art show kicked off with a pre-recorded message. 
Quote, you've heard so many voices already, but this is just the beginning of me telling my story, my narrative, from my perspective. Unquote. Then it was kind of a runway where models walked down this narrow corridor holding up her signed colored pencil drawings. She can't have paint in prison, so the supplies that would be sent to her to make these drawings were like just colored pencils. And then they would actually be taken out of the facility by her lawyer which cost about 5k a trip for this whole transport, back and forth. I don't know how it adds up to that, but allegedly that was what it took. This collection was estimated to be worth between 400k and 500k, which isn't nothing. But if we're talking about the world of fine art, kind of chump change actually. Her stated goal was to sell, for some reason, specifically 48% of the collection to make a profit, with price tiers starting at 250 so 4,000 pieces of art were made available. How many actually sold? How many offers came in? They're keeping quiet about that. They are also keeping quiet about where the proceeds are going. Because a portion, apparently, is going to a group focused on immigration reform, but they will not specify as of recording time yet what group that is and what specifically they do. They probably don't want to say too much about the money because before she actually had some money taken away under the Son of Sam laws in New York when you can't profit off of your crime. She actually got over $300,000 signing away her life rights to Netflix. But after that, some of the money was taken away by the New York State Attorney's Office because of the Son of Sam laws. So she still actually did pocket some of that money before they caught her essentially. In addition to art, she's made a bit of a, an influencer career for herself, appearing on many podcasts, including one that was live-taped at this rooftop venue, which is also where Chance of Free Anna spontaneously erupted. The sponsor for this art show is very interesting, because information is pretty sparse. It's called Founders Art Club. The co-founders view Anna as, quote, the real deal, and, quote, an opportunity for her to voice herself in a more permanent way and enter the world she tried to enter the wrong way the first time, unquote. The two publicly listed clients, just two publicly listed, of Founders Art Club, Anna herself and Alfredo Martinez. Martinez was arrested for forging Basquiat's Anne Martinez was actually the curator behind Anna's first art show back in March. The fascination with Anna, I think, has a bit of the satirical Elizabeth Holmes energy, the girl bossing your way until you make it parody content. With her elaborate courtroom wardrobe and her accent, people can't quite place. People just, it's easy to try to make a social media caricature of that. There is genuine support on social media, though, for a different star who committed a crime. There is a TikTok star, Cameron Heron. Long story short, he got a two-year prison sentence after he was driving a car and killed people crossing the street, a 24-year-old mother and her 20-month-old daughter. This was in Tampa back in 2018. Part of the reason it was just two years is because he pled guilty. He had been street racing at the time and driving at 100 miles an hour. In court, images and videos of him were taken and repurposed into social media content. And fans were really zoning in on different moments to show, see, he, he's really remorseful. This poor boy, bright future gone, needs a lesser sentence. Look at all these little telltale signs that he's really distraught over this. They tried to analyze everything about this to defend him with any crumb they could find. 
Both Twitter and Instagram accounts were set up dedicated to him. A change.org petition for a reduced sentence surpassed 28,000 signatures. TikToks involving him surpassed 2.2 billion views, billion, that's right, with hashtag justice for Cameron videos surpassing 26 million. And despite having no public posts, Cameron's TikTok has over 2 million followers. Some further investigating did reveal some red flags that are typically signs of bot activity. So some of these pro-Cameron accounts seem to be bots or at least sketchy. But he does have very real fans. His mom has said people have a, quote, unhealthy obsession, unquote, with him, sending mail to him, calling the house at odd hours. She said she appreciated the gestures at first, but is so overwhelmed now because supporters have hacked his fiance's social media accounts, on social media been barraging in messages, this family. It's a lot to take in. This is actually not unusual at all. A lot of young male killers of all kinds, car crash, stabbing, whatever the case is, whatever they did, they will get a slew of fan mail. So much fan mail, sometimes unsolicited photos that are suggestive. Sometimes they'll get other gifts, lots of phone calls, social media love. But I would like to finish this part, this story, this chapter in this episode with the remarks from the now widowed, childless husband here, who asked the judge for the maximum 30-year sentence. Quote, this was a crash, not an accident. Please be aware of that. I can't get the thought of the entitled monster who killed them. Something happens to me in this room. It is critical for you to understand that you've created everlasting pain and depths of sorrow. Unquote. TikTok has also really led to this cottage industry of basically serial killer fantasy stuff, fanfiction stuff, praise, admiration. These are the numbers dating back to the summer of 2019. So where they are today, way, way, way higher. But by then, searching for hashtag Charles Manson on TikTok brought up over 40,000 views. Over 7.7 .7 million for hashtag true crime. Over 14.5 million for hashtag Ted Bundy and over 16.4 million for hashtag serial killer. Ted Bundy activity on social media really kicked up upon this 30th anniversary of his execution, January 1989. With the Zac Efron movie and the Netflix docuseries, people just really latched onto the story, renewed interest in it. Some, again, was in that weird lane where it's irony, I think. Like one girl who had to admit it was a joke when she tried to convince her followers she was related to Bundy. And then there are other getting ready for my date with Bundy, TikToks and stuff, role play videos that are just ugh. Interestingly, Ian Rule, who personally knew Bundy and wrote a book about this, said that a lot of how he acted, he didn't really. The media said he was like this, but she doesn't remember him that way. So the Bundy that was, oh my gosh, so charming and cute, was not how he was in real life at all. She said he wasn't, quote, handsome, brilliant, or charismatic. He somehow became all of those things as the media embraced him, unquote. Basically, his face was good for TV, I guess, is kind of what she's saying, which kind of fed this view of him in such a swoon-worthy light, I guess. One Bundy supporter, his fiercest, Carol Boone, actually ended up marrying him in court. Bundy, representing himself in court, incorporated a proposal into his questioning of her, and it was legally valid as saying I do because they made sure a notary was present in the courtroom and ahead of time they had obtained a marriage license. 
Carroll actually moved from Washington State to Florida to follow his trial and then marry him. They also had a kid together. Stephen McCod, who interviewed Boone for a book about Bundy, said she came across as not living in reality, not seeing him at all for who he truly is, really not seeing who he was, living in this shared reality with him of someone he just wasn't. Love blinded her, I guess, is one way to put it. Some people like Carol do also take on this mentality that this time is different. They are the spouse that will change this person, that has the power to fix them. There's Beverly Bonner back in the 90s who left her husband for a convicted criminal, who then killed her once he was freed and they went off to live together. Then there's Rosemary Wally who became pen pals with a convicted killer and became his fourth wife. He was released on parole and promptly killed again, 11 women. All right, let's get into the Depp Heard case now and tie everything together. The Super Sparknotes version of the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard case. The two got married in 2013. Heard got a restraining order against him in 2016, and at that time she did allege physical abuse. A $7 million settlement was reached that year, Heard saying she would donate the money to charity. That would take like an extra hour to dive into, but that was the claim. Then in 2018, she published her op-ed in the Washington Post, opening up about being an alleged victim of domestic violence. She didn't even name him. She did not say Depp's name, or Johnny, or any part of his name, or initials, or anything. Just that she had been a victim. And that is what the case is based on. Depp sued her for defamation, but she didn't bring up his name. But he said, well, the insinuation that it was me that people will make was there and cost me career opportunities, money, etc. This actually was a suit filed in 2019. It got pushed back to this year because of COVID, backing up all the trials. The jury decided Depp was defamed and earns $10 million. Actually, he was owed, they said, $15 million, but because of state laws, they have to reduce that to $10.35 million. Yet, they also said Heard was defamed a bit, so she gets $2 million. Depp actually lost a defamation suit in 2020 in the UK when a jury found 12 of 14 claims substantial against him. He had sued the son for calling him a wife-beater. Recently, some GoFundMe accounts have had to be banned fake campaigns set up to allegedly fund legal fees. There were presumably prank accounts set up, pro-DEP ones, asking for money to, quote, save Amber's career, unquote, and, quote, raise awareness to stop women like Amber Heard, unquote. Other DEP stands raised money for online ad space that would be anti-Heard and pushed into corners of the internet where it could counter-program anything pro-Heard that might appear. Famous quotes from this trial, which was live-streamed throughout for the world to see, ended up on Etsy merch. That's hearsay became a popular thing, Depp said. One Etsy store ended up selling shirts that said, that's hearsay, I guess, for $24. Another shirt referenced this cross-examination question they found funny, Depp stands, about, did you drink a pint or pour a pint or something? And so the shirt says, that's hearsay brewing company, home of the mega pint. Etsy sellers sold That's Hearsay stickers, Justice for Johnny stickers. The social media activity, enormous and enormously skewed in favor of Depp. On TikTok, hashtag Justice for Amber Heard had 54 million views. Hashtag Justice for Johnny Depp 
16.5 billion views. Twitter trends on and off for days were hashtags like Amber Heard is a liar and Amber Turd. Justice for Johnny entries on Etsy are now well over 4,000. There have been TikTok trends where people reenact the court testimony, sometimes with cats in wigs or with themselves in wigs, cosplay. Audio with Amber saying, you hit me, has been repurposed as a joke in so many different videos. It was 15,000 videos to be precise, before TikTok took down a few. One viral TikTok showed a Starbucks which put out place your bet jars, the Depp one being full, the herd one not. There was also a lot of social media chatter about an SNL sketch making light of this trial, focusing on the pooping in the bed allegation instead of anything else. That got over 4 million views in its first day and became the most viewed video from SNL's channel the past month. Depp Stan's review bombed Dr. Spiegel, who testified in Amber's defense. Then he wrote in an op-ed, quote, During my career, I have dealt with people who are not guilty of murder by reason of insanity, and I've dealt with people who are psychotic and have threatened to kill me, and it has never fazed me one iota, but this did, unquote. A lot of Amber Heard witnesses have been getting tons of hate messages online. Amber herself has, of course. Some famous influencers were pro-herd, but that content did not perform very well, and they saw their follower counts drop, which really disincentivized that. Elaine Bredhoff, a herd attorney, ended up being way too on the nose with her prediction, saying that Depp fans would, quote, take out of context a statement and play it over and over, unquote. Despite everything else going on in the world, this news coverage has been the talk of social media. According to data from Newswhip, the Herd Depp trial generated more engagement than a host of other content related to current news, abortion, war, inflation. This did skew younger, so just to be clear, so younger users more absorbed in this trial, older social media users still more focused on the economy and war, but still very dominant in the social discourse. Not just online, but a big deal in person too, some people sleeping in their cars or getting out there at 1 a.m. to try to be one of the 100 fans who got a coveted spot in the courtroom that day. Police eventually started enforcing a curfew where you just couldn't show up any earlier than 1 a.m. One super fan there mentioned hoping to one day sell the courtroom sketches she made. One Depp fan said she spent all her vacation time and 30k traveling to Virginia for the trial. One fan spent over 2K just on our outfits for the trial, knowing it would be live broadcast to the world. One couple came from Ohio. They brought their dogs in homemade Depp legal team vests and ties. Someone showed up in Jack Sparrow cosplay. A Depp superfan, who's a doctor, rescheduled, rearranged her appointments five times, shuffling them around five times to make time to attend this trial and asked if her husband would join her on their 10-year wedding anniversary at this trial. He declined. One superfan relocated from the UK to the USA. She's in a transient period of life, just got out of a 12-year relationship, put her stuff in storage, and thought it was a good time to just fly back and forth between LA and Virginia for trial proceedings. There was also just in general the cacophony, booing when Heard showed up every day, cheers when Depp did, overjoyed cheers when he got on his Jack Sparrow voice to chat with fans. The crowd was really angry at Heard supporters, so much so that her witnesses were warned, you better leave the second your testimony ends. During the trial, don't wait till the end, because they will mob you out there.
Time for my personal take on this and what this has to do with all the other celeb trials I talked about today. First of all, there is no way the jury was not influenced by the social media activity. I just can't see a world where they took a week-long break, mid-trial, were not sequestered ever, went home every day, saw nothing, heard nothing. I just don't believe that. They had to be swayed at some level, even if they tried to be super objective. And Heard does plan to appeal, by the way. And I think as evidence for the appeal, they should bring up the break. They should also bring up the fact some jury members literally fell asleep more than once. That should be something. Second of all, I want to explain a little about why it was live-streamed. First of all, broadcasters wanted it. What media outlet wouldn't want it broadcast? Law and Crime's YouTube channel viewership increased 50-fold during this trial, and during the verdict reading alone, had over 3.5 million live concurrent viewers. But there are three main reasons why this was live-streamed, one that I really agree with. So the first one is that the judge pushed for it. She actually officially issued permission for cameras to be there back in February, so she had decided this was how it was going to be early on. She did bring up a good point, saying she thought more press would show up if it was not streamed, and that could have created more of a scene. You never know how that affects how witnesses show up and present themselves. Second reason, Depp's team pushed for it. His attorneys were the first to request cameras be allowed in that courtroom. Depp lawyer Benjamin Chu argued that so many elements of this case have been public for years already. It made no sense now to cut off access to the public. We already know a lot of the underlying details. Depp's rep during the 2016 situation, Adam Waldman, even admitted he's had multiple phone calls with influencers. Quote, I communicate with the internet journalists exactly the same way I'd communicate with the mainstream media. I'll inform them. Unquote. Third reason, and this is what I agree with, court transparency is usually a good thing. Really good to have court transparency. Yes, that transparency could lead to more acting, I guess, but it could also lead to more accountability, and we should know how our justice system works. Legally speaking, court proceedings are supposed to be public. They're usually not hundreds of fans outside clamoring for a seat, but you can walk in and watch a proceeding. It's public. The gray area is how public. So technically, courts are open to the public. How public is very specific to each court, what they decide. Also kind of affected by things like if there's anonymity, like a Jane Doe situation, or if this is a criminal versus a civil case, how witnesses might change what they do in response to being televised is supposed to be one of those factors. Not sure it was here, but it is just a way to reach people, especially when people aren't just turning on cable TV anymore. So at a time when mainstream media trust is waning, still seeing how our system works through social media doesn't have to be a bad thing. So here's what I think. My big problem and frustration with this whole trial is very big picture. I'm so, frankly, really worried about this precedent. Because I don't care who you believe. I do think they've both hurt each other, physically, mentally, in the past. And I don't know the ins and outs of who I believe about which claim. But I do know this will have a terrible effect on real abuse survivors. 
Believe Amber or not, believe Johnny or not, this jury has set a precedent saying that in the U.S., you don't even have to name your abuser. All you have to do is say that you're a survivor of domestic violence. And if you say that publicly in a paper, they can insinuate, you're talking about me, aren't you? And sue you for it. You can be considered to have defamed an abuser, not even by mentioning, just by saying you're a survivor. It's messed up. And Heard's attorney said, one of the first things Heard said to her after the verdict was, quote, I'm sorry to all these women, unquote. The disparity in their reactions has been really something. There's Depp, who has been celebrating. Even pre-verdict, he wasn't too worried because he spent the nights impromptu performing at concerts and stuff, making surprise appearances. But then he issued a statement about, I'm free, love all the support, thank you, I have my life back. And Heard's statement was very, you know, I'm sorry, and this is, a, you know, a dangerous precedent, really disappointed in the verdict, in the message it sends, but wow, the tone difference. My other big issue with the trial is how quick everyone was to take sides and get really invested, not in the issues, but in the spectacle of it all. Not in the claims, not in a larger discussion that could have been prompted by the live stream, could have been an opportunity for talk about partner violence and power dynamics, manipulation, whatever. Instead, it turned into a talk about, you know, SNL sketches about poop in the bed and catchphrases on t-shirts. It's really just gross to me that a really personal, emotional, serious issue was turned into such a spectacle made light of. Again, I don't care who you believe in this specific case, what kind of precedent does it set for survivors to know that now, in the social media era, their claims of abuse will be turned into a joke in a t-shirt? That anything they say could be a soundbite for a viral TikTok trend? That anytime they are crying out for help, people will laugh at them? Literally laugh. What I really struggle with wrapping my head around is, is it possible to ever truly disentangle putting something on social media from stripping it of its nuances? Can you really have a situation where characters are put on online and are not turned into characters and fodder for money and stuff? Is something inherently a spectacle when it's posted online? Is the culture just too focused on monetization and the wrong incentives algorithmically for that to ever be the case? Is it possible to exist in a world where this stuff is public on social media, live streamed, and treated with the care it deserves? I don't know. I don't think so. But maybe someday we can learn from this? We can do better? The inherent nature of performance of social media really interests me and concerns me at times like this. Because how do you ever remember these are real people that you're making money off of? Imagine doing that for anyone else. Imagine hearing about someone who you don't like, say they were abused, and grifting off of that. Even if you don't like them, who would do that? One guy wrote songs about this trial, three really popular ones. One artist started posting about the trial and saw massive view count growth and kept then totally switching up content for this trial, adding emojis and stuff to thumbnails about the trial, but also saying that was to, quote, mask the negativity with fun stuff, unquote. One pro illustrator had 50 TikTok followers, then rose to 12.7 million views and 108,000 followers after making animated versions of the trial. One gamer, who used to make about 100 bucks every few months in ad revenue, made 3700 after one day of Depp Heard trial coverage. He's now made over 11 k 
One creator with over 1.4 million Instagram followers earned well over 5k for his Instagram reels, saying, quote, what I've gained from it is money, as well as exposure. It can basically change your life, unquote. One YouTuber earned 5k in a week for this coverage. One young influencer said, quote, Johnny content performed a lot better. When people do post stuff trying to defend Amber Heard, they will lose followers. They just care about the views that it gets, unquote. One of the pro-dep Etsy sellers said, quote, he's being funny. As a business owner, you go with the trends, and that's what is trending right now. So I was just like, let me jump in on this, unquote. There's a similar air about Anna Delvey's supporters. These quotes are really something. I don't know the moral of it or anything, but parts of it are definitely inspiring. It's good to see her apply herself in a creative way. There's an art to the scam. People who get screwed over tend to exaggerate, but I don't know, it's not my problem. Then there are comments from the R. Kelly fans, like these, quote, There is nothing he could ever do to make me doubt him. Nothing. Going into it, I felt he was innocent, but then I thought, let me put aside R. Kelly and just listen to what they gotta say. Some creators even have said they didn't even watch the full trial. They memefied it, they blasted herd, they hyped up Depp, and didn't watch the trial. One creator said, quote, All I see on the internet was all the evidence is that Johnny Depp is actually the one that got abused. I don't know if it's true. I'm not 100% sure. I'm a creator, and this is for entertainment. I don't mean anything. Creating content, you have to be on top of the trends, unquote. That's my big issue. My big issue with this and other celebrity spectacles is I think there continues to be too much of a disconnect between how people view mainstream and online discourse. People view what's online, what you sell online, what you say online, as just its own thing. Trivial, consequence-free, nothing to see here, just following trends, everything's just a joke, everything's ironic, everything is what you want it to be, and then people will forget about it, whatever, no issue. And then real-world stuff is different, but treating those as very distinct, separate things is like of a bygone era. That's not the world we live in anymore. Those worlds are not separated at all. What you do online galvanizes real-life action. What you do in the real world affects what's on social media, too. It works both ways, and that's why I'm so adamant about the importance of studying internet culture. I think internet culture reporters are so important because these types of spectacles are creating the kind of interest and attention that shapes how the public perceives issues, how the public caricatures people, how the public thinks about serious topics in ways that don't have the substance they should. The heaviness of a subject doesn't go away because it's a meme format. And I think people just need to shift their mentality out of this outdated frame of what I say and do related to the internet, related to trends, is just for fun. No need to read into it. I don't mean anything by it. That mentality just doesn't fly anymore. We don't live in that world. Obviously, I get the irony in me making a podcast episode about this, but the difference is that I'm going to criticize Johnny in the self-righteousness. That may not earn me followers, but I'm still going to do it. The moral issue with this kind of content is when you don't use it for any good. You don't use it to say an argument that you've been reflecting on, like I have, after really being invested in this, after thinking about long-term ramifications. If you use trauma as a trend of the day, that is shameful. Most times I do still support court transparency, but I think domestic violence is one of those cases where this should have been private. 
and maybe in the future it should be taken seriously. If a lawyer says, hey judge, social media is the reason why I think this jury needs to be sequestered or why this case needs to be handled this way or that way, be closed to the public, whatever, judges should take this seriously. Now they have a precedent, see? This is what they do to the woman accusing him of something. This is what swayed the jury last time, probably. The bottom line is that it matters. It matters what you post online. I know everyone thinks it's not that deep. To me, I always try to see the deeper meaning in things. And it's there. It's embedded in there. Sometimes it becomes inconsequential. Like you could read deep into a meme and then it just calm down. It's just a meme and people move on. But sometimes it is consequential and it's up to you when you decide to analyze for that deeper meaning or not. And with topics as serious as this, they are worth that analysis. It's also really important that this is a teachable moment for mainstream legacy publications because my generation, Gen Z, and millennials really are disillusioned with the mainstream media. And so we feel like we can trust more influencers and peers to tell us the truth, to cut through BS, to skip talking points that the political class is circulating or whatever. But that's not always true. I listen all the time to podcasts and hear about podcasts where people say things and then during the show find out that was a lie. They didn't do their research or they just say things that are irresponsible and it just annoys me because I work really hard on making sure I'm giving you the facts. But also it just surprises me the extent to which a lot of content creators don't fact check or anything. A lot of content creators, you can't just automatically assume they are more trustworthy because they don't know as much as you may think. And so it's really important to remember that. So there's something for all types of media to understand. These social media platforms need to prepare better in the future for how their algorithms can not skew things so much and lead to so much vitriol about this personal, really serious situation. And legacy media need to do a better job earning our trust, not just automatically assuming we bestow credibility on them. They need to regain that trust and hear from us, not belittle younger generations. And one way to regain our trust may be to not belittle the impact of internet culture on our world and how immersed in internet we are. Maybe taking that as a serious thing to study and report about is one way to that future where we do trust mainstream outlets more. I will say there also are some creators who have done a nice job using this trial as an opportunity to spread awareness about different issues, but it's just very tricky ethically to do that. Again, I'm having a hard time personally too just grappling with that question of is there even a way, is it possible to talk about something so serious on a platform as deprived of substance as social media posts and keep the dignity of those people intact? Something we as a society collectively should be thinking about. Something else I've been thinking about, how quickly people will move on. I mean, the Gabby Petito case that true crime TikTok really was interested in. I talked about that with EJ Dixon on our interview, by the way. If you want to catch that and hear more about the concerning parts of the internet, I also have an interview with Kelly Weil about this stuff. But anyway, what's concerning is how quickly people moved on. Were you really spreading awareness for the sake of spreading awareness if the second it's no longer trendy and profitable, you stop talking about it? How many Petito posters are still talking about domestic violence? My guess is not many. Social media is such a cool tool to enter the world of activism for survivors or do something good for the world, get invested in a cause. But if that interest, that passion is fleeting, then we have to worry about this exploitation, this mockery of issues that last way longer than a TikTok trend. 
I'm trying intentionally not to shame the supporters as much as the bigger institutional cultural forces that are concerning. The individuals are kind of shaped by these systems. The systems are what I really don't like and want to direct my frustration towards. And also I just try to be incredibly, maybe groundlessly optimistic about humanity. And so I try to look at the why of why people are into stuff, even the most gruesome stuff. So here is the psychology research on people who are into killers and the like. First of all, there is a sexual arousal to violence. It's called hybristophilia. It was coined in the 80s. At the root, it's kind of about fantasizing about what I mentioned earlier, that I can fix them. This relationship will be different. I'll change them. Mentality. There's, of course, also psychology behind liking a bad boy to the extreme, being in proximity to notoriety and publicity. Psychology Today reported about how women with an affinity for notorious killers might have been abused in past relationships and have now been kind of mentally primed to seek out toxic relationships in the future. They're like desensitized to that now normal, awful behavior from partners. There's also, of course, people who love the thought of a macho man going by his own rules. Also, of course, some women are conditioned to think and act in a very motherly, nurturing way. Again, with that attitude of, I could have treated them better. I can make sure to make up for the fact they didn't have a mom growing up or something. They also tap into the cosplay of like Holmes, for example, taps into this interesting need to feel understood for being a fake. Truly, like, how many people feel like they have imposter syndrome, like they are faking it till they make it in life? And that's what these people did, and it led them to literally make it in life. So they're, like, aspirational in a weird way, that they were able to do it, even if they did it in not a moral or legal way. Stephen D. Benning, a professor of psychology at University of Nevada who specializes in psychopathy, says that people with an affinity for infamous characters tend to score higher on tests about agreeableness. Because agreeable people are more prone to see the best in other people, to want to see the chance for redemption within them, to look at someone evil and still see at their core something fixable. People who score higher on agreeableness tests also feel that sense of control that they could change them and are more likely in the first place to develop this parasocial relationship with people online, with people they don't know IRL. And they feel like they need to be there because the person on trial doesn't have anyone else. The world is turning against them, and so you can console them at least. Other elements you could think about are the tabloid fodder of some of these cases, the gossipy stuff, just sensationalism, the gore at times with these serial killers, the gruesome details that are like a car accident you can't look away from. It is important to note there is no empirical study about the psychology of a fascination with these killers and other criminals, but these case studies do show some trends to keep in mind and trends that are really important to keep in mind when thinking about social media algorithms, when thinking about media stories. Keep in mind these impulses people have to think a certain way about certain people, and maybe that can shape reporting going forward. Just something to think about. I will also say what might give you some faith in humanity I will leave you with today is that as big as these numbers are, the amount of money made on this stuff, the amount of followers you get for this stuff, it still is relatively a small percentage of people on social media. The vast, vast majority of people agree that people like Ted Bundy are evil. 
the vast, vast majority agree that these people are horrible. And again, some of the people grifting don't actually care about the specifics of who's involved. It doesn't mean they're necessarily not caring about abuse or whatever. They just really don't think about it at all. That's not where their head is at. A lack of critical thinking is better at least than a lack of caring. So I'll say that. Hopefully it restores your faith in humanity that there can be a better way forward and that most of us agree on who is a murderer or whatever the crime is and try to keep that in mind next time you see a narrative like that Ted Bundy narrative of he's so charming. Stop and question that, please. I hope I gave you a lot to think about today. Thank you all so much for listening as always and I will see you next time. Bye, everybody.